Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank You for Your blessed Word, the Word by which we know You, the Word by which we taste of the goodness of God, the greatness of our God, the means by which, Lord, Your salvation is revealed to us. Our whole lives are unveiled before Your Word. It is a Word that searches us even to the point of the dividing between soul and spirit and bone and marrow. Lord, it exposes It convicts, and yet it heals, it sanctifies, it makes us fruitful, for it conveys your grace to us. O Lord, we come helpless, unable to even listen and unable to hide it in our hearts, certainly, Lord, unable to love it and cherish it and practice it in our lives, apart from your Spirit. But we thank you that you so freely give him for our blessing. Lord, we rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. First, as a kind of introduction, I want to give us a little vocabulary lesson. Oh boy, this is what we want. Um, Most of you know this, but it's a review then for some of you and perhaps new to, to some others of you. Uh, because this morning we're going to be ordaining two new deacons uh, into our office, I thought I'd talk just a little bit about that word deacon before we then come to Galatians and t- 
talk some about our servanthood as it's spelled out here in Galatians. Um, When you see these words in English, deacon, minister, or servant, they all refer to the same Greek word, original Greek word. In fact, deacon is just a way to transliterate that word. It's diakonos. So, deacon is the only word in English that just is transferred over. But the word minister is usually translated from deacon, and the word servant is translated from the word deacon. And because of these different translations of the word, we kind of lose some of the meaning of the original language. Here's how we would say it. Darwin is our minister, right? Minister is my official title. That's what I wrote down on the marriage license last night for Neil Brighton and and Sarah uh, Sally Greenhall. Uh, I'm a minister of the Word of God, but they would hear it this way: Darwin is a servant of the Word of God, because it's just the common word for servant. You see, we don't tend to think servant when we say minister. Uh, we say this. Daniel and Eric, for instance, are deacons. They would hear Daniel and Eric are servants. Christ says of himself that he came not to be served, but to serve. And he calls all of us right here in Galatians 5.14 to serve one another in love. So here is a good way to summarize it. I am a servant of the word of God. We have a board of servants, of a whole church of servants, all following our Lord, who is the perfect servant. That's who we are. That's what we are called by God. So it teaches us that servanthood belongs to all of us, but it is so essential to the life of the church that it has been crystallized into an office, you might say etched into the stone of the very structure of the church so that we are servants led in that servanthood by a board of servants. Even the elders who rule do so as servants in in that all of our work, all of our labor is a way of serving his, his people. Now, this shows that the deacons are not the mercy arm of the church, as we sometimes think. The whole church is the mercy arm of God. Okay? The whole church is the mercy arm of God. But the responsibility of the deacons is to lead in that servanthood, to organize and galvanize the congregation in its Corporate servanthood. Theirs is to try and create opportunities for people to use their gifts and to call forth their servanthood. So they have this privilege of creating this ongoing, expanding opportunity for people to use their gifts in this way. So they're certainly not called to serve instead of us. Like a designated driver. Everybody else in the car is not driving. 
And they don't need to drive. They're not fit to drive. But you got somebody who's designated for it. And sometimes we think of that. Oh, good. We've got this group designated to serve. And that way we can kind of sit back now. We've got that's taken care of. But they're the designated leaders of servanthood in the congregation. Their very name says it. The first line of duties in the deacons reads this way in the book of church to order. It is the duty of deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless and to any who may be in distress. And that's certainly accurate. I wish it read this way. And I honestly think this is more to in tune with the scriptures that it is the duty of the deacons to lead the congregation in ministering to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. And so they are setting the pace and creating the initiative for servanthood within and without the congregation. And another word about this, their threefold duty is mercy uh, the building and money that's all that's listed. They have responsibility for finances, for the building and, and for mercy. But we need to see also that the building and the money are merely tools for mercy, tools for love, tools for servanthood. How shall we serve with this facility? How shall we serve with the wealth and the resources that God gives us? So. It's like a formalized office of love and servanthood and good deeds, even in the area of money and property. The question is asked, how do we use these for God's glory? And we've even followed what is in the Book of Church Order in the last paragraph of that chapter on deacons. It is often expedient that the session of a church should select and appoint godly men and women of the congregation to assist the deacons in caring for the sick, the widows, the orphans, the prisoners, and others who may be in any distress or need. And our our present uh, committee of mercy, mercy committee, is certainly this uh, fulfillment of this uh, suggestion uh, by our book of church order. And so we don't have a a committee of mercy that does mercy instead of on behalf of the rest of the congregation alone, but rather that leads it through encouragement and example. So that's one way to translate that, you see, to always keep before us that I'm a servant of the word. They are servants We all are servants under Christ who is a servant. You could put it this way, which kind of makes the point, too, that I am a deacon of the word. I'm a diakonos in the original language. Uh, We have a board of deacons. The whole congregation is deacons. All God's children are deacons, you see, in that regard. And Christ is the true deacon. Or another way to put it that opens up a little more meaning is to use the word minister. We think of that as belonging to me. Well, how many ministers do you have a minister in your church or who is your minister? And if you want to get technical and and catty, you could say, well, we have 400 ministers, you know. (laughs) Yeah, okay, okay, you know. (laughs) But it's true that I'm a minister of the word, but they are ministers, a board of ministers, a congregation of ministers. And so that's why we say emphatically, when you're called to Christ, you are called into the ministry of Christ. 
So every one of you emphatically is a minister under Christ. And what's in a name then, this servant, deacon, minister that is galvanized in a board and yet is a description of all of us? It shows that we all have a rank in his holy army, don't we? Each one of us enlists as servant first class and we stay servant first class, always retaining this designation. Everybody's job description is fundamentally the same, simply using our gifts in different ways as servants. But that is what we are beginning to end. And we look to our Savior and he says, I didn't even come to be served, but to serve. And in that context, Jesus says, those who will be first among you will be servants of all. So, in a sense, the S10s are the leaders, uh, the, the ones who are, have gone furthest in laying down their lives and serving. Those and those alone are the leaders. He says, you will not lord it over one another like the Gentiles do, but you will be servants of one another. So you see, this, we, we can't really talk about ordaining to uh, the diaconate without the whole meaning of this word of, of, of servanthood. And what we all are called to, because even in talking about the ordination of deacons, we're we're told and instructed this means something for every single person here. It means how I deal with my own husband or wife, how children deal with their parents or your brothers and sisters. I'm called to be a servant. And this living office that's fixed in the church calls us to that. It shows the critical importance of it. The church will not be a church. We are not Christians if we are not servants. Now, this passage in Galatians, just three, three words to bear in mind here. Freedom, fruit, and sowing. Freedom, fruit, and sowing. He says in verse 13 that... Your call to freedom, only use your freedom as an opportunity, not for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. You see that servanthood is bound up in love. And we see here the whole law is fulfilled in, in, in one word, loving your neighbor as yourself. So all of scriptures we've seen so many times is bound up in one basic command, and that is of love. And how does love spill itself out? In servanthood. Servanthood is just love in action, love working, love giving itself away. But he says that you are free now. And freedom means that you're now unshackled. You're not boxed up. You're not caged. You're not weighed down. Uh, You're not tied down. You're not chained. You're not in the dungeon anymore. You've been set free. And you you think of a bird that's been in a cage and the cage is open and and he flies. And that's the sense here. There's a freedom that God has given you. And of course, our tendency when we think of freedom in our own natural thing is freedom to serve myself. You know, freedom to do what I want to do. And of course, that is to go back into the cage, and that is to return to the dark dungeon. Your freedom, as he says, is not for the flesh, 
But the freedom, the very meaning of this freedom, the very exhilaration and satisfaction of life and his salvation is giving yourself away. It's the freedom and the capacity to give yourself away with joy. That's the freedom that he gives us. And just two aspects of this freedom. One is the freedom of acceptance. We've got the freedom from condemnation and judgment. We have the freedom from alienation. But we are restored to God. We have His favor. We have intimacy. We are declared not guilty. There's a permanent association with Christ. We are clothed with His beauty before the Father at all times. And so, God is entirely committed to our good every day. What a glorious freedom that God's smile is upon you in Christ, in spite of your failures and sin. It doesn't depend on your righteousness. It depends upon Christ. So there is this freedom of acceptance, of receiving this love, knowing his commitment to you that frees you to give that love to others. And then there's the freedom not only of acceptance, but the freedom of being renewed. He's given you his resurrection life. You've been raised from the dead if you're a believer. You're indwelled by the very spirit of God himself. It's it's said in Ephesians that you have a new self. It's the very life of Christ in you. And this new life is one of love and servanthood after the very pattern of Christ. What else could it be? When you look at the life of Christ, one of sacrifice and love for others, what is it going to look like when that life is reproduced in you? It can't look any other way than one of giving yourself away after the pattern of Christ. And when Christ calls us to himself, it's as though he's standing there with the towel around him like he had on that night when he washed their feet, which was a little parable of what he was going to do on the cross. There's no other Christ to come to than the one who's standing there as a servant. There's not another Jesus. There's not a Jesus that calls you to comfort, you know. To things being easy and, and, and things being the way they always have and, and you just imploding more and more as a human being. He calls you to give yourself away. There is no other example that he sets before us. There is no other life to be had except that. Here's your freedom. And it's interesting in that passage in verse 13 when he says, through love serve one another. This even has the stronger word of slave. So it's like we're saying, be enslaved to one another in love. Be one another's, here we say, love slave, right? In a pure way that we, I enslave myself to do you good. That's what love does. Freedom. Freedom. And of course, the great passage on the fruit of the Spirit. And what is that fruit in verse 22? It's, it's love. And some say all these other things are just parts of that love. That there are different aspects of love. That, that love has this joy about it. It has a peace about it. it it's patient. It's kind. It's good. It's faithful. It's gentle. It, it controls itself and gives itself away. That's what love is. And isn't it interesting that the fruit of the real fruit of the spirit is love 
that's connected with joy and peace. Love always, real love, is happy to give itself away. Aren't you always happy to give yourself away? That's one of the severe limitations that we have. And it doesn't mean, of course, that we don't have to make sacrifice and sometimes you don't feel like it to begin with, etc. And so you have to give yourself away and you have to not allow your emotions to dictate or your emotions to be your God or your idol. And you bow down and say, well, I don't feel like it. And that makes them your idol. So you serve your emotions, whatever they say, whatever they do, instead of the word of God. But always as we give ourselves, it's with that prayer, oh, Lord, Bear the fruit of joyful love in my life. Oh, Lord, enable me to walk in your peace even as I love. And notice, it is never our fruit. It is never the fruit of the flesh or the natural man. We hit the brick wall of our limitations every day. It is far out of our natural character to sacrifice joyfully for others. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that same fruit that enabled Jesus to lay down his life, which we're told is exactly what he did, that spirit will bear that fruit in our life. And so we pray, O Lord, bear your desires in my life. Bear your motives, your purposes, your passions, your purity, your patience, your goodness in my life. The flesh, as the passage says, has a whole different set of things, doesn't it? And that's why in the last, you see, it says, so then, in verse 7 and following, so to the spirit, don't so to the flesh. So to this one by giving yourself up to his will and trusting him. And turning away and putting to death all that is opposed to him. As verse 24 says, it was read, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so the flesh, you see, is opposed to this servanthood, this enslavement. The flesh is what we call the deadly self, the old self. The self that ignores and neglects, it disregards, it mistreats, it abuses, it uses, it manipulates, it puts down, it slanders, it gossips, it it lies, it misconstrues, it hardens itself, it refuses to listen and refuses to help and refuses to consider, it attacks and hurts and takes revenge, it retaliates. It hates, it screams and yells, it commits adultery against and with, it steals, it cheats, it deceives. And the whole point of the grace of God is to put all that to death. To put all that to death. And to not sow to the flesh, but to sow to the Spirit. And I just leave you with this exhortation from that latter part of chapter 6. It says this, it begins, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. We really tend to be deceived that 
this servanthood and this love and giving ourselves away doesn't matter one way or another. That we can just drift along and be like we've always been. We can never consider these things. We can never have to really labor and and change our lives continually and ask new ways in which we might copy the Lord Jesus in our lives. And he says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. It means destruction. So here's an edge to all of this. It is all of his salvation to make you a loving, joyful servant. But if you refuse that and refuse to trust him and refuse to cry out to him and you're just going to live for yourself, you are promising yourself destruction. And notice, not to do good is therefore sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption. All you have to do is nothing. Really. That's all you have to do. You know, don't hurt anybody. Basically, don't cause any trouble. And you can go to destruction just like that. Because you never became something like Jesus himself. Oh, God will give us grace. Let us cry out to him that we be those kind of servants. Let us pray. Oh, Lord. We thank you that you set us free to spend our lives. After the pattern of Jesus. We praise you that you put your spirit in us and he bears this glorious fruit of joyful love, of wholeness, shalom, peace. Of putting us back together to make us into the image of God who is from all eternity love, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, thank you that you are restoring us. Thank you that you are renovating us from the inside out. Thank you that you see that we are virtually condemned buildings ready to be laid low. And yet you come and you value us. And you spend lavishly even the blood of your own Son to purchase us for yourself. And then you remake us into buildings of beauty and glory that reflect your handiwork, that reflect your character. Oh Lord, it is all of you. We confess to you, Lord, that we constantly struggle against our remaining selfishness, our remaining sin, our remaining corruption and hardness of heart. But we thank you that you are greater than all of our sin. We thank you that the work you've begun in us, you will complete to the day of Christ Jesus. And oh Lord, those two things that go hand in hand, loving servanthood and joy, 
that you will work those in our lives side by side, making us more and more a happy people and more and more a holy people. Oh, Lord, we trust you. You alone are our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just want to say a few words about ordination as we come to that part of our service. As you will see, the elders will lay hands upon Alan Bondarud and Rick Lenz, our two deacon candidates. And it is the way is a visible way of showing that the church is putting their hands upon these people and setting them apart, these two men, for service in the church. But more importantly, we've got to see that it is Christ putting them into office. It is Christ appointing them and putting them aside for this service. It says of the elders in Ephesus, Paul says, you whom the Holy Spirit has appointed as elders. And so it is with the deacons that the Lord appoints them. And I want to, for their sake and for you, to think of just two main things in the ordination. That this ordination is a, is a gracious command to them from God. And it's a gracious promise to them from God. It's a gracious command, number one, because you don't deserve it. None of us deserves it. He commands them to a privilege of service that no one could deserve. Listen to what Paul says about himself. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, undeserved favor was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Totally undeserved. Paul said, me, a sinner, I, I get to preach about Christ. Who could believe it, you know? And that's the case for anyone who serves in the church. Can you imagine me of all people? I'm a minister of the gospel. What a what a laugh, you know. And yet God is merciful. So it's a gracious command in that sense. But it's a gracious command because it can be a happy command. Gracious in this sense that He enables you to walk in freedom and bear that fruit and enables you to walk in it. So, it is a gracious command, a gracious command that you uh, don't deserve it, and it is a happy thing to be called to by His grace. And it's also a gracious promise, because He promises you first His favor. You go as men forgiven and accepted in Christ. His favor is upon you as you go, not because you're naturally good guys, but because he's hidden you in God's own righteousness, the righteousness of his son, his own son's acceptance. These men belong to Christ and are hidden in Christ. They'll not be perfect, but his favor is upon them. So we all need to see this. God's mercy and favor put upon them, 
even in failure. And then his promise of power, his promise to transform them, his promise to grow them and equip them to fulfill this office, his promise to uh, empower their ministry so that they'll do good in other people's lives. So here in this ordination, he commands them to do good and he promises his favor and his blessing upon them. And so let's see this as Christ's action upon them, Christ setting them apart, apart, Christ showing them his favor, Christ empowering them. Now I'd ask uh, Alan and Rick if you'd come forward, please. to ask you these questions as you make your vows to take this office. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice, do you? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures, and do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will, on your initiative, make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow, do you? Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity, do you? Do you accept the office of deacon in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer, do you? Do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? Do you? And do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? Do you? Address this question to the members of the congregation. Would you stand if you're a member of this church? Do you, the members of this church, Fort Worth Presbyterian, Acknowledge and receive these brothers as deacons. And do you promise to yield them all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord, to which their office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles them? Do you? Thank you. Please be seated. I'd ask the elders to come forward. We thank you, Lord, that as the word teaches us, you are giving these men as gifts to serve your church. We thank you for what you have done in their lives, drawing them to yourself and making them willing servants of your people. Gracious Lord, you've called these men to this office. Now set them apart by your powerful Holy Spirit. 
equip them, endow them, fill them, govern them, strengthen them. O Spirit, grant them wisdom, compassion, faithfulness, diligence, and purity. We thank you that you will attend them with your unlimited favor and your boundless power. We thank you for their wives, Shirley and Marilyn. We thank you for your grace in their lives. We thank you that they have shown themselves to be willing servants and sacrificial servants toward believers and unbelievers. Thank you that you are making them like the woman of Proverbs 31, who extends her hand to the poor and stretches out her hands to the needy. Oh, Lord, continue to pour out your grace in these two marriages, that this calling to the office of deacon will not interfere with their marriage, but rather enhance their marriages. As these wives give their strength and encouragement and gifts to support their husbands, And as these husbands demonstrate their servanthood first and foremost in the love and kindness they show to their own wives. Use these men according to all their capacity to build up your people in kindness, mercy and servanthood. To encourage them and challenge them and set an example before them to organize and motivate them to kindness, mercy and servanthood. Use them, Lord to extend your kingdom in this place and around the world to your glory and honor. For it is in the great name of the true servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Right hand. That's the manly hug, you know, shake and... and, uh... Just keep a little bit of distance and... I now pronounce and declare that Alan Bonderud and Rick Lenz have been regularly elected, ordained, and installed as deacons of this church agreeable to the Word of God, and according to the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that as such, they are entitled to all encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I would be seated in the front row. I'm going to speak to you and everybody at the same time. I want to read to you this portion that I've alluded to in Mark chapter 10. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I'd like to speak to all of us in this last charge taken from this passage. And it's simply this, that we all keep our eyes upon the Lord Jesus himself. We just keep our eyes upon the Lord Jesus. When he says son of man here, we tend to think he's pointing out his humanity. After all, son of man, I'm a human being. That was his designation to indicate that he was really a human being. But as most scholars will point out, that phrase, that term has a very different meaning in Scripture. It's taken from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what is said in that passage. This is where Daniel is, so many centuries before Christ, predicting the messianic kingdom. Listen, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We think this is fulfilled in Christ's resurrection and ascension and his exaltation to the right hand of God, where Paul says he was set there far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So this glorious Son of Man, ruler over all kingdoms forever, that all nations would serve him, with all of that packaged into that word, says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. There are no more startling words in Scripture. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's what he's saying. This convicts all of us. It is hard for us to serve. It's hard for husbands and wives to serve each other with constant kindness and faithfulness and tenderness. It's hard to consider one another as more important than yourself, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2. It's hard for you children to honor your parents in all of your actions and all of your words and all of your thinking. It's hard, hard for us to lay down our lives for one another because, and here's the, here's the shocking thing, we fancy ourselves as little kings and queens. Every one of us. Our purpose in life is to be served. Our purpose in life is my needs, my wants. And we would never say this, but our lack of honor and servanthood in the home and with one another is just another way of saying to others, hey, bow down to me. Honor me. Serve me. If you don't do it right, I'm going to be angry, bitter, sullen. 
Yet even the Son of Man, the only human being who is worthy to say, serve me, yet said, I came to serve. And of course, it's not just that this magnificent king came to serve, but to service in the most radical way. Not just service a little bit. I'll serve you in a few little things, which would be amazing that he would do anything, anything at all for us, you know, and not the other way around. But he does everything for us. He serves us absolutely. He lays down his life for us. As he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so... Let us keep our eyes upon Jesus. Let, it, let us keep our eyes upon his sacrifice. We're to take our love and our servanthood and hold it up to Christ's like you would compare a drawing of a house to the house itself. Each one of us asking, how is my life a picture of the sacrifice of Christ? That's the question. How does my life as a husband or a wife or a child, how, as a single person, as a person in community, as a person in this church, how is my life a picture of the sacrifice of Christ, of his love and compassion? And within this body, since these are the people for whom he sacrificed himself, am I indifferent to the very ones for whom he sacrificed? The very people of God. And those in the world, many in poverty, those believers in prison and in dangerous circumstances, do I neglect those for whom Christ has died? Or do I remember them in my prayers and my giving in whatever way I can? These men will set a standard by God's grace of love and mercy along with all the deacons and the elders are called to this as well. But each one of us, of course, we see ourselves as being called to put on those servant clothes. You've heard me say this before, but a lot of times at weddings, I'll say this uh, about the couple, that they're dressed so beautifully and wonderfully, they look at their best. But really, what are they doing at that point? They're both, like Jesus, putting the towel around and taking on the clothes of servanthood. Because that's it from now on. Serving each other by God's grace. And that's what we are about. By His grace. He said, this is love. That He laid down His life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Praise God that He will do that. This is salvation. I want to leave you with that. This is salvation, not just being saved from hell and judgment, but saved from self. It says in 2 Corinthians, He died that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died and is raised for us. Isn't that encouraging? He died to set you free from yourself. And He will do a magnificent job of it. So that this whole congregation, this whole congregation can be a congregation of Christ-like servants, little models of the very grace of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.
O Lord. This is your charge to us. To enslave ourselves and commit ourselves to love one another. To sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. To see the very fruit of the Spirit spectacularly show itself in our lives. Lord, we are nothing, we have nothing and can do nothing. And each one of us must confess to you the terrible failures in our lives. And yet, we are bought by Jesus. We belong to Jesus. His life is in us. And Lord, we are told that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. Lord, fulfill your glorious purpose in our lives. We trust you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Shall my soul with rapture trace